And so Hannah, who is this person who's been, she's, you know, working class person, she's been living a very difficult life. She right. sees this happen and she's kind of stunned and staggered by the promise of freedom that piracy seems to afford, which is, I think, some something that we all kind of share and a reason that pirate stories are kind of a perennial interest. Welcome to Historical Fiction Unpacked. I'm your host, Allison Treat. Hello, readers. Welcome back to the show. This is episode 14 of season six, and it's the final episode of the season. Today, I'm sharing a conversation I had with New York Times bestselling author, Katherine Howe. We're discussing Catherine's latest book, A True Account, Hannah Missouri's Sojourn Amongst the Pirates, and it's a really fascinating conversation. Now, my regular listeners might notice that some of Catherine's views differ from my own, and although I might not agree with every social issue that she addresses in the book and in our conversation, she is so knowledgeable and she shares some valuable insight during this interview, so I think it's an important conversation, and I think you're going to love it, so... Here's my conversation with Catherine Howe. Okay, Catherine, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, your latest novel, A True Account, Mm -hmm. Hannah Missouri's Sojourn Amongst the Pirates, released on November 22nd, oh no, November 21st, a couple of weeks ago. Can you tell me about this book? Yes, Uh, the story in A True Account and first of all, I, I love that they let me get away with giving it such a long and ridiculous title because I love long and ridiculous titles. So the full I, actually, title is, I actually didn't read the entire thing. The full title. I know. The full title is A True Account, Hannah Missouri's Sojourn Amongst the Pirates, written by herself. Right. And we actually had a little bit of a smackdown at my publisher because that, that long second part is technically the subtitle. And I was really pushing for the whole title to be A True Account of Hannah Missouri's Sojourn Amongst the Pirates written by herself. The um, reason for that, and I have long wordy titles for other books too. My first novel was called The Physic Book of Deliverance Dane, which is really a mouthful and yeah. impossible to translate. And I like to joke that people think the title is The Psychic Block of Perseverance Blame. But... Um, <laughs> So I do like long wordy titles, but the reason for the long wordy title in A True Account is because the action opens in Boston in 1726. And so the title owes a little bit to the convention of titling novels. Um, The novel as a form is kind of new in the 18th century. And so most books that were published um, had these long, wonderful wordy titles that went on for an entire page. And so the action opens in Boston in 1726, where a girl named Hannah, Missouri, who's been bound out to service in a tavern called Ship Tavern that was a real place in Boston in the 1720s and had already been standing for almost 100 years at that point. She is, she's bound out to service and through kind of a a few happenstance kinds of events, she ends up attending a a hanging of pirates that really happened in Boston in 1726. Okay. A guy, a guy named William Fly. This really happened. A guy named William Fly, um, because of hard usage, um, staged a mutiny with some of his crewmates. Took over the ship that they were on, called the Elizabeth. Renamed it the Fame's Revenge, and went pirating off Cape Hatteras in the Carolinas. And then, okay. because sailing a ship is actually very different from navigating a ship, those are two very different skill sets. They captured a guy who was a fisherman and were trying to make him serve as their pilot. The guy they captured was supposed to take them to Martha's Vineyard, which is an island off the southern coast of Massachusetts, to pick up fresh water and supplies. And instead, the fisherman tricked them 
and led them all the way outside Cape Cod and to Boston because um, the fishermen knew that then they would be picked up by the authorities. And what was interesting about William Fly is that when he was hanged, there was a whole politics to the public spectacle of hanging in the 18th century, which we can talk about if you want to. But William Fly refused to be sorry for what he had done. And his last words were, um, masters of vessels, um, do it well to your men, lest they be put upon doing what I have done, you know. And so Hannah, who is this person who's been, she's, you know, working class person, she's been living a very difficult life. She sees this happen. And she's kind of stunned and staggered by the promise of freedom that piracy seems to afford, which is, I think, some something that we all kind of share and a reason that pirate stories are kind of a perennial interest. And yeah. so through a, a series of unfortunate events, um, Hannah ends up having to disguise herself and flee, flee for her life. And she finds herself in disguise um, on a ship that is run by a different pirate named Ned Lowe. And then just when we think we understand what's going on in the story, we discover that instead of just following along in Hannah's footsteps, that we've been reading over the shoulder of a different character. And that character is named Marion Beresford. She's a professor at Radcliffe in 1930. And she has discovered Hannah's true account. Mm. And the real question then becomes, is Hannah actually a trustworthy narrator of her own life? Do we believe what Hannah is telling us has happened? And in between it all, there's some typical pirate tropes, like a treasure hunt, and there's a parrot, and there's a guy with just one leg, because you've got to do it. Um, But but ultimately, the the story in a true account poses questions about truth and myth, and can something be emotionally true while being factually false, which is, of course, a question that is dear to any fiction writer's heart. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, That's so fascinating. And I do want to get back to the public hanging idea. But first, tell who, me what... Who doesn't want to get back to the public hanging? <laughs> right. Um, but first, tell me about what inspired the story. I I understand that your own aunt had this name. <laughs> yeah, so. I, stole, I stole Hannah Missouri's name. Um, it's funny. So a few years ago, there, there, there's some good histories that you can read of women in the age of sale. And the age of sale, broadly, broadly speaking longer than the golden age of piracy which was a very short window of time from about the mm. 16 call it 50 40s 50s to the 1720s right the, go- the age of sail was much longer it didn't actually end until the opening of the suez canal in 1868 okay so there are some good histories of women in the age of sail because we tend to imagine that this maritime world was a totally male world like if you've seen master and commander there are no women in that in that right. film um, but that representation is not actually all that accurate. There are some women who disguised themselves as men and went pirating. There are a couple of very famous examples of those. Yeah. Um, more commonly were women who shipped out as the wives of ship captains or other officers in the merchant marine. So there was a real Hannah Missouri. She got married in Beverly, Massachusetts in um, the seven, uh, excuse me, the 1850s, I think it was. Okay. And then she um, she was married to a ship captain who was a clipper ship captain. And they set out one day with a load of locomotives. Um, it was the fastest way to get some locomotives over to California because it was wow. the time of settlement in California. And it was before the trans Transcontinental Railroad had met. Right. Right. So they have to take a load of locomotives around Cape Horn 
all the way back up to California. Wow. It takes them 207 days to go from Massachusetts to California. And of those 207 days, 50 of them were spent just trying to get around the horn. So can you imagine like hard sailing in the Southern Ocean with a load of trains? Wow. You're trying to get, I know, it's kind of staggering. So they, they offload them in California. I stumbled upon this story. It was really kind of random how I came upon it. They offload them in California. Then they go down to Sydney, Australia to pick up some passengers. They go okay. from Sydney to Hong Kong. Then in Hong Kong, they pick up a load of laborers who are going to go work in California and probably work on the railroads. As they're crossing the Pacific with a load of passengers and a crew, Edward, the captain of the ship, dies. Oh, no. And then they start running out of fresh water. And then the crew and the passengers mutiny. And Hannah, the real Hannah, who at the time was 33 years old, like maintains control of the ship with a pistol. She puts down the mutiny and then hangs a flag upside down off the back of the ship. And they end up being um, rescued off, I think it was um, Santa Cruz. Initially, I thought it was San Francisco, but later I learned it was actually Santa Cruz, okay. uh, California. Yeah. And then after she is rescued, um, she sues for her husband's percentage of the ship. Because her husband is the one who died. Right? Her husband was the yeah. ship captain who died. Yeah. She sues for his percentage of the ship. And then takes the money that she gets from that um, and buys a little modest little house in Beverly, Massachusetts, goes back, gets remarried. She marries a dentist. She lives quietly. And then she dies in 1910. And as far as I could tell, I couldn't find out, but I don't think that she had any children. And I just loved when I stumbled upon this story. I loved that. I loved imagining like 1908 walking down the street of Beverly, Massachusetts and passing a little old lady, you know, on her way to the market or wherever. wherever. Right. And this person has been around the horn with a load of locomotives and put down a freaking mutiny with a yeah. handgun. Like, I just loved it. And it was this it's this little dramatic story that largely, I think, escaped notice. There was one history that I'd read that that alluded to, to her and this and this event but had not recorded what her first name was and so and didn't record anything of her background or what happened to her afterwards. And so I, I just thought it was such a fun story that um, I wanted to pay homage to her with the name of my protagonist in a true account. That's awesome. I, I love that story. And was was she related to you? Is she that... was she was like okay. a great a great aunt ish like That's her husband amazing. was Edward Howe. So she was Mrs. Howe. Yeah, which I think was great. And in one of the histories that I read, a history of like women, sea, women at sea or women seafarers, she's just talked about as Mrs. Howe. It doesn't re record her first name, wow. or middle name, or like any of her subsequent names or anything like that. She's just kind of her her personhood is kind of delighted, as it so often is. Yeah. Um, and so um, I ended up tracking down because I'm I'm sentimental. Ultimately, I pretend that I'm tough, but I'm actually quite sentimental. I ended up tracking down where she was buried. She was buried with her second husband, you know, and his family and stuff. And I just went and I'm not normally a grave visitor type of person, but I went and mm -hmm. I visited and I just thought to myself, you know, I know what you did. I know this story. This story is crazy. And I know that it happened. Yeah. That's great. Mm -hmm. So then you used her name, but that's mm -hmm. not necessarily the same story. No, it's or, a different story. It's right. a different story. If anything, the, the story in a true account is kind of inspired in part by some very famous women who went disguised as men and went pirating. 
Anne Bonny and Mary Reed are the two probably best known ones. And they mm-hmm. were both working class women. Um, Anne Bonny actually, although she was born, I think, in Cork, Ireland, she ended up making her life in the Carolinas. And they ended up in the crew of a guy named Calico Jack Rackham, which is such a great pirate name. Um, yeah. Each of them disguised. Anne Bonny ended up being Calico Jack's lover. Mm-hmm. When they were raiding up and down outside of um, Port Royal, Jamaica, which is a kind of infamous pirate nest. In fact, if yes. you've seen um, Pirates of the Caribbean, it technically opens in Port Royal. Okay. A heavily fictionalized Port Royal. Right. Um, and so when they, they were finally, you know, attacked by the British Navy and, and brought down like Anne Bonny and Mary Reed fought harder than the guys in their in their in their crew. And there's a story and it might be apocryphal, but supposedly after Jack Rackham, Calico Jack was captured and sentenced to hang, he was allowed to go see Anne in prison. And she and Mary were also sentenced to hang, but they both pleaded their bellies, which is to say that they were both pregnant. So they got to have their death sentences commuted for a little bit anyway. Uh. And uh, Jack Rackham went to see Anne Bonny, feeling sorry for himself as he as one would. And she said that she was sorry to see it, but that if he had fought like a man, he wouldn't have had to die like a dog. <laughs> Harsh. <Wow>. Harsh, <laughs> yeah. right? They're so tough. They're so much tougher than me. For sure. Tougher than I am anyway. Mm-hmm. Wow. So then <laughs> <laughs> Hannah's story, the one that you write, Yes. <laughs> a true, the, the, the true, true account, a true, a true account, account. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, is inspired by, by their stories. Yeah. And, but I, I mean, you mentioned that this, the original Hannah Missouri, who you, mm-hmm. where you got the name was mm-hmm. related to you. And then yes. you have a long, you come from a long line of, you, you hail from <laughs> a long line of sailors, right? A little bit. Yes. Yes. It's my only hobby. It's my sailing. only hobby, sailing. Yeah, I know other, other people. I have no other skills. I don't knit. I can't cook. Uh, I can't garden. You, you can know, write. I, you can write I, and you can... Yeah, but that's that? that's my job. Writing right. is work. Um, sailing is the only thing that I do for fun. And it's the only time I think that I ever feel really fully present. Um, wow. Because it commands your attention so completely. And so like anybody who's spent time on the water, uh, you know, I thought about pirates and you know, read stories about pirates and I've been reading Treasure Island with my son. We get, we get very into our Treasure Island play in my house, which is very fun. And, but one thing that I thought was interesting in thinking about pirates is that we, I think we tend as a culture to romanticize them a bit, partly because we don't really know anything about them. And so Mm -hmm. one thing that I think is funny or has been interesting to me about the reception of a true account, which has been out for a week now um, at the time of our speaking anyway, uh, is a lot of people there there some reviews are like this was great but it was more violent than I thought there's a lot of people who are like there's a lot of violence in this book and in retrospect and I tend to be a very pg-13 writer I'm really a wimp I don't mm-hmm. have like a lot of language I don't usually have like much sex or anything like I'm right. such a chicken but what's interesting is um so it's a little bit out of character for me mm-hmm. um but what's interesting about it is that much of what happens in the story of a true account I didn't actually make up you know, a lot of it, like there are obviously Hannah, the character is, is a fictional character, but there are other real people in the, in the book. And some of the violent things that happen are either things that definitely did happen right. or, or versions of things sim- that are similar to things that really did happen. And so, and I think culturally we have kind of elided 
the violence that attended on the golden age of piracy. We've sort of forgotten about it. I think sure. like it's become the the purview of children. Mm, like yes. like piracy has become has become perhaps through fiction, through the sort of domination of Captain Hook and Long right. John Silver, you know, both of whom are these ableist stereotypes, but we've forgotten that their mutilation of their bodies actually gestures to actual danger to actual and and sort of like moral like it's interesting to me that the only thing that finally made pirates not scary was fiction itself hmm that's so interesting it's almost been sanitized so that it's Mm -hmm. acceptable for children to read about Absolutely. Yeah. Well, not just yeah. read about, but, you know, dress up. I might, there's a lot right. of pirate costumes in my house. There's pirate yes. hats all over my house. Like, <laughs> you know. Yep. Right. Um, so why, why do you think we are so fascinated um, oh. by piracy as a culture? And, and what do you think it represents for us? I mean, I certainly, the question of freedom. I mean, one of the things that's, that's interesting to me about golden age piracy is that it is it exists at this intersection point between the radically free and the radically unfree mm. and by that i mean so look at let's look at william fly william fly didn't plan to become a pirate you know mm-hmm. he he was he was driven to it by the extremity of the bad usage that he received at the hands of the merchant marine where he was working and in the 18th century this is also that this is a time of varying and widespread conditions of servitude, whether that is enslavement, whether that is impressment, whether that is indenture, you know, there, there are many different shades of control that are visited upon people on land and at sea. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that I find kind of fascinating is that, so, you know, if you went out on the account, which was a sort of a term of art, that's another reason why a true account is the title of the novel. If you went out on the account then you were acting only in your own self-interest. You weren't acting at the interest of a government. You weren't acting at the interest of a syndicate. You know, you weren't acting at the interest of an enslaver. You were you were acting under your own auspices. And there are some historians who've pointed to the kind of proto-democratic organization of a pirate ship, where leadership was by popular acclaim, where mm-hmm. shares were apportioned in a way that was explicable to everyone, where a code of behavior was subscribed to by everyone. Um, There are some historians who've pointed to that as like the first experiment in democracy, which I think is kind of, maybe it oversells it a bit, um, because I think there's certainly a greater anarchist (laughs) strain to it than we're perhaps willing to admit. But it's not that far off, especially given the lack of choice that was visited upon by most people who were alive in the early part and late. 17th and into the early part of the 18th century. But the other, I think, thing that we forget or maybe don't understand is that so much of golden age piracy and the raiding that they did and the money that they went that, that they were after was tied up in the transatlantic slave trade, mm-hmm. in, the, in the like trade and money attached to enslaved people. Yeah. And so, um, so I just find it a really dynamic and fascinating moment. And I think that we tend to romanticize it because of the freedom and self-determination that it seems to promise. But we, we overlook that that freedom and self-determination was brought about by like really 
difficult and hard to imagine conditions of constraint. Right. So speaking of freedom and the different like layers of that, um, your protagonist, Hannah, and maybe the, the um, 20th century protagonist as well, mm-hmm. are they both looking for independence in some way? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Mar- I mean, Hannah is, as I said, she had been bound out to service. And that is what, that is something that would happen when you were, if you were a child and your family, you know, in the British colonial North America, um, yeah, and your family couldn't afford to keep you, they couldn't afford to, to, to hang on to you. So like, we all actually are familiar probably with a, a person who was bound out. And that is Abigail Williams, the mm-hmm. girl who was at the very beginning of the Salem witch panic. She was 11 years old, and she she had been bound out to live with Samuel Paris, the minister of Salem Village. Um, so Hannah is living in a time of very little choice and very little prospect. Um, and her job, she's uneducated. You know, her job is to obey everyone all the time. Right. She has very little pleasure. She has nothing of her own and very little possibility. And so I wanted to explore, you know, what happens when someone like that is put in this extreme condition where she, she has a choice of either kind of accepting her fate or taking drastic measures to change, to change that fate. And in a similar way, um, the protagonist in the 1930s storyline, Marion Beresford, on the surface, her life is much easier than Hannah's. I think by by any metric, she is, you know, from a privileged background. In fact, we get hints of her privileged background and how she's kind of rebelled against it, but she still a- a- approaches the world with a certain set of assumptions that are informed by her privilege. Right. And she um, and she's she is a professional woman. She's well educated. She's got money. She she has friends. She has a degree of choice, but at the same time, Marion is a queer woman in 1930, which is a time when um, gendered appearance and also behavior was subject to strict policing. And so Marion is living in a time where she has to appear a certain way in order to guarantee her safety. And so one thing that is a common theme throughout this book is people specifically women appearing the way people expect them to be in order to guarantee themselves a modicum of safety and within that safety some some freedom to maneuver Mm -hmm. so how do you think that kind of the their stories compare to the ways that women are looking for freedom today i mean i think it i think it depends on the woman but i think i think most of us i think most of us are familiar with, you know, certain cultural expectations for how we're supposed to behave, how we're supposed to look, how we're supposed to be, to perform. Right. You know, sure. Because we all kind of craft our appearances. I mean, to some degree, we all have to, we all do it even on so many different platforms, you know, all, all our little social media platforms. Yeah. Are you, are you friendly enough? Are you approachable? Are you funny? Are you, you know, that's true. Um, so I saw from your bio that you're a trained historian and scholar of early American history. So can you share more about that part of your life? No. No. Okay. <laughs> Is that boring? No, I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. I'm kidding. Um, yeah. Um, no. Well, so I was, uh, I was pursuing a doctorate in American and New England studies when I was, in, so I was a grad student. Okay. When I started writing fiction and my very first novel, 
um, the Physic Book of Deliverance Dane is a Salem, it's a magical realist Salem story. So I'm originally from Texas, which is a region of kind of magical realist inflected narrative. You know, I grew up with, with these kinds of stories and mm-hmm. myths and, and things like that. And, um, and the story in the Physic Book of Deliverance Dane came about because I was living close to Salem and I wondered, you know, it was interesting to me that our representation of witchcraft today is very acute for the most part. It's very like hocus pocus, uh, Harry Potter, pointy mm-hmm. hats. It's very charming. And in the 17th century, it was terrifying. Yeah. And it was, and it was a felony punishable by death. And so I wanted to um, write a story that wondered what if one of the Salem witches were the real thing, the way the colonists actually believed witches to be, not in the cute pointy hat kind of way. Um, What if they were real? What if she was real in the way that colonists believed and understood witchcraft to work? Hmm. And, um, And of course, a lot of that is bound up in gender and in class and in um, economics and so that is how so I ended up writing my first novel while I was in graduate school and um, never looked back happily okay (laughs) great so you've mostly um, yeah tell me about kind of how you got the first one published but you've also written um, nonfiction as well yes Um, so most recently um, I'm the co-author with Anderson Cooper of two books on the Gilded Age, mostly. Um, the first right. one is Vanderbilt, The Rise and Fall of an American Dynasty. And the second, which just came out in September, is Aster, The Rise and Fall of an American Fortune. Mm. And in each case, we were really interested in looking at the kind of unconventional family biographies. You know, they're not really straightforward. They're They're, they're both kind of episodic looking at particular members of these families at different moments in time or around particular kind of defining events. Right. Yeah. Each, each of those books are, they're, they're really fun. Um, and I enjoyed both of them very much. Yeah. But you started with novels. Is that Mm -hmm. right? And you know, you left graduate school. How did you go on that path to publishing that first novel? I was very, very fortunate. Um, I was, so in the early aughts, everyone, there was a big poker fad. Okay. Everyone was playing poker for a while. I don't know why. I was one of those people too. And so in grad school, a group of us had a poker game, a regular poker game. We played mm-hmm. Texas Hold'em. And one of the people in my poker group um, was a historical fiction novelist called Matthew Pearl. Okay. And he um, had a very successful book called The Dante Club. And so there was one night Hey, wait, wait, like, gosh, almost 20 years ago. It's astonishing to think about that. Um, one night, my husband said, hey, you should tell Matthew your book idea, because I've been thinking about the idea of a physics book, and I've been thinking, oh, I should do it for National Novel Writing Month or something. Mm-hmm. But I hadn't really gotten organized into doing it. And uh, as you can imagine, I said, no. I said, Matthew doesn't want to know my book idea. He's going to think it's dumb. Oh, which is real. He doesn't want to hear that. And then my husband <clears throat> rather wi- wisely, I think, said, um, have another glass of wine. And so <laughs> I did. So sometimes when I tell the story, I joke that my path to publishing was through gambling, procrastination, and drinking to excess. <laughs> um, so I had my second glass of wine, and then I told Matthew my book idea. And he was like, oh, that's really interesting. And then a few weeks went by, and then he called me from the train. And he said, oh, hey, he's so 
modest and self-effacing. He's the nicest person in the world. And if you haven't read his stuff, you have to read it. He called me and said, hey, I hope you don't mind, but I I mentioned your novel to my agent and she'd like to talk to you. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> I hope you don't mind. Um, and so I was unusual. I was very, very fortunate um, mm -hmm. to have that, the path to have like a guide really on my path. Matthew, you know, without Matthew's involvement, I wouldn't have a career. Right. Do you want to tell me more about public hangings? Cause I never got back to that. I knew, <laughs> I knew I'd forget. So there's a, a historian named Marcus Redeker who I admire very much. who's written a lot about piracy. Mm -hmm. and he makes a really interesting argument about the role of terror in piracy. Mm. And so, you know, so what happens with William Fly is William Fly was publicly hanged along with two of the men who mutinied with him. But that it doesn't stop there. His body after he's hanged is gibbeted. And that means that his body is hang, hung in chains on a rock in Boston Harbor oh, and left there to rot. Wow. Yes. And so a fair warning, this does occur in a true account towards the beginning. Okay. And the reason for this, which like the, to our modern day sensibilities, first of all, I think most of us would find it appalling, the idea of wanting to go and watch an execution. I would, I would imagine, or I would hope that most of us, that is shocking to our sensibilities. And the yes. idea that people would travel from towns all over to watch hangings as if it were a party, is hard to imagine. Um, right. But nevertheless, that was the case, certainly for the witch trials, and it was the case for public hangings of pirates too. And secondly, the idea that we would countenance the, the gibbeting of right. these people is, is, is hard to wrap our heads around also. But the rationale behind it, according to Professor Redeker, and I think he's right, is that it was a way for the state to terrorize people out of misbehavior. You know, it was, it was like the spectacle of it was meant to strike fear into the hearts of mariners who would otherwise consider mutiny, or in the case of witches, to strike fear in the hearts of women who would otherwise make themselves disagreeable to their neighbors or somehow fail to align with their cultural expectations for their behavior. And... And so, like, piracy works in, in a couple of ways because the threat of pirates was itself terrifying, right? Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, a, a, a pirate ship could kind of seize a prize without all that much bloodshed, actually, because, you know, the, the cargo's insured. The guys who are on the ship, they don't care if they, if the, if they lose the cargo. They just want to get away with their necks. And so, right. so, and also with the threat of what a pirate might do to you, it's a lot easier to say, okay, take my stuff. I don't care. Um, and then it is to try and fight and save the cargo that, that you have no say over. Um, so there was, there was an effect of the threat of terror on behalf of the pirates. And then there was a use of terror to try to dissuade people from piracy. Yeah. Wow. So this is a question that I ask all my guests. How mm -hmm. do you think learning about history through story helps us, helps us approach life in the present? I don't know how to answer that question, to be honest with you. Like, I don't, I don't know if it helps us in the present. It's hard at times not to feel like I'm just, you know, part of the system of bread and circuses that, that keeps <laughs> us all like, like obeying. <laughs> like, <laughs> you've got me at a pretty cynical time, I'm afraid. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think, I think one of the things that's really useful with historical fiction, and maybe this is like me speaking as a, as a history person, mm -hmm. um, you know, 
I think there are many histories that are hard slash next to impossible to write because they are of people who leave so little record of themselves in the archive. And yeah. so that's why I tend in historical fiction to be really drawn to writing stories about regular people. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to be your girl for a, you know, Regency romance. Right. And so like one thing that is interesting to me about, like I've written a lot about Salem witch stories and now I'm writing a lot about pirates. And I think it's because those are two instances where regular people are at the center of the drama. And it's one of the two rare instances where there, there's a, a lot of record of what regular people said and did and thought and felt. Okay. And so, um, so if anything, I like to think that historic, the kind of historical fiction that I'm trying to produce can argue for the value of, of the small life, maybe. Yeah, well, I think that answers it very well, because you're trying to use it to amplify those, those lives that maybe we don't think about when we look back at history. Right. So I think that is a, um, the value of using story because you might not get to see them otherwise. Mm -hmm. Well, Catherine, this has been a great conversation. What is the best way for listeners to follow you? Um, I am easily found. I have a brand new Substack. Uh, oh, which I'm great. enjoying, which is pretty fun. Um, and it's just, Kath I think it's called Catherine Howe's Substack. Mm -hmm. So it does not have a long 18th century title. Um, I also have a website, katherinehow.com. I'm on Instagram, lots of pictures of books and sailing. Um, my handle there is Catherine B. Howe. I'm on Twitter-ish still techni technically at Catherine B. Howe, and I have a Facebook page. And I'm on Goodreads. Um, the only thing that I'm not on is TikTok. I'm too Gen X. I can't I can't cope. I can't either. Can't do it. <laughs> I tried and I gave up. And yeah. so, um, but I can be found on pretty much on your, whatever your favorite social platform is, I can be found there. Hey, great. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much, Allison. Well, friends, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Catherine. Let me remind you to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. And also share this episode with someone if you think they would enjoy it. If they love pirates and swashbuckling stories, they might enjoy this episode. Also be sure to visit the show notes either in your listening app or on my website at alisontreat.com slash blog. Now, if you cannot get to the links through your listening app, you can always find them on my website. So just visit alisontreat.com slash blog and you can find the episode you're looking for and there will be links to the author's books and website and ways to follow them on social media. This is my last episode before Christmas, so I want to wish you all a Merry Christmas. Go back and listen to my episode with my 10 top reads of this year if you want some gift ideas and have a Merry Christmas, a Happy Hanukkah, or whatever holidays you are celebrating and a Happy New Year. Before I let you go, though, I want to share some words of Robert Brault when you think of the value of a small life. He said, enjoy the little things, for one day you may look back and realize they were the big things. Keep reading historical fiction, my friends, and I will talk to you again in January. <laughs>